Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we're back, and I'm, I'm really excited. It's another watershed for the Gov Actually pod. Great. Why and that is because we have the first person here who has absolutely no professional relationship to OMB. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, never, that's never happened before. And, I, and you said I, last time we need to make sure that people don't turn this into OMB, actually. You know, that's they don't, true. Because people start tuning out. But This um, is going to open all new worlds for a us. A whole new world yeah. of potential. I'm told that there are other places to work than OMB. <laughs> And, and we're exploring that today with Fedra Krusis, uh, who I had the tremendous honor to work with at, uh, at GSA. And she was our first agency chief customer officer. Um, there's some argument around this, but I'm going with the fact that she was the first chief customer officer in the federal government. And I think at least Fedra and I can collectively agree to that. And, and you know, you don't know enough to dispute it. That sounds great. Right. And, yeah, if I, if I Google first... Chief customer officer. Well, hopefully we'll make that the case yes, by spending it there. enough yeah. times on this uh, on this podcast. And um, I know you, uh, you know, you've you've heard a little bit about our background. I, I think it would be good for me to tell you a little bit more. So, Fedra started as our chief customer officer, but we realized over time that the platform for delivering government services was shifting more and more to digital service. So she took over the digital service activities within um, GSA, right at the time we were really developing some of those new offerings, um, 18F, and she led the effort to really launch the Transformational Technology Service, or TTS. And you had some really, you had a good set of questions related to some current news on the budget that I think uh, would be the best way to kick off the conversation. Yeah, I'm always trying to think through kind of what's going on today. I mean, I think the premise of the podcast is to take what's happening in government or in politics and put it through the lens of what it actually means for, for what goes on, on the ground at government. So what's going on right now uh, in, today as an example as we're taping this um, the uh, the Trump administration is starting to give insight into what its budget blueprint is going to be for 2018, as I understand it. Um, and I think the headlines are a, a relatively uh, large increase for defense spending, but but steep. And I think I heard one quote uh, breathtaking uh, was the quote cuts in other um, non-security agencies. And so I thought it'd be interesting if you think about, and I don't know, I don't know what the numbers are going to be. Let's say it's a 30% cut at at, a, at an agency. Uh, I think people are talking about cuts at, at agencies like EPA and others. What does that mean in terms of the trajectory that the government is on f- in terms of innovation and customer service? Does it set us back immensely to think about deep cuts like this, or can the efforts that you were involved in when you were at GSA, can they actually help land the plane on cuts like that more effectively? I think it can go to one of two ways, right? So it could either be used as the ultimate excuse not to innovate. So most of our budget is used on O&M, 
the discretionary budget is usually the innovation budget. So once you slash your budget, you can get all sorts of excuses as to why you can't change the status quo because you don't have the money to do so. On the other hand, the flip side of this is it'll force people to think about how to do things differently because they'll need to do some, some things, they'll need to keep some programs going with no budget. So they'll have to innovate, whether they innovate the way that they execute them or the way that they think about them. So I think you're going to get some accidental innovation. But the big projects, the ones that move the government forward, I think those are the ones that are going to get cut, get cut first. So you think there's going to be panic-driven innovation, <laughs> but otherwise it won't be kind of planned innovation? No planned innovation. Right now we know that the IT budget is an $80 billion budget a year. We know that 80-plus percent is spent on operations and maintenance. And we know that Congress was trying to pass a budget for discretionary funding on technology to 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 flip those legacy systems and replace our technology. Without that extra spending, I don't see how we're going to both maintain all these legacy systems that we have holding up our government and try and insert new ones in the process. Yeah, I think government change is hard in whatever direction you go and you have to think about what the execution implications are. Um, if we were to double the size of a government program, that is not easy either because you're increasing activity through um, a static administrative structure, an oversight structure, and suddenly you're doubling the activity. You've got to plan for it. If you're going to cut the activity in half, you also have to plan for it because that could create confusion amongst the citizens that have been engaging with a fuller footprint of activities. The federal employees that are involved have to plan how to downsize, and in some cases, planning to downsize their own enterprise can be difficult from a morale standpoint too, so it raises other kinds of management challenges. Um, and so I just think it's really important as we consider significant cuts to discretionary spending just you know, consistent with the theme of the podcast, what is what are the implications of that, and how would you start to lay out a plan for undertaking that while preserving right. things like innovation and talent in the in the U.S. government? I think one of the interesting things will be we'll need to do more with less. So you will find perhaps innovation in contracting. You'll find people thinking differently about how to use their workforce, about automation. But yes, I think it'll impact morale and. I think if not done thoughtfully, and if it's done more as a lop, you know, lop off a side of a program, um, and not kind of look at smart cuts across, I think you're going to get um, you're going to get you're going to have problems managing your your programs. Well, let's say let's say for the purposes of of thinking this through, you had an agency, the agency of X Y Z, you had a budget, and and I told you your budget was cut thirty percent. Um, I won't I won't tell you when it's cut 30%, but it's right. going to be cut 30%. How would you approach that then? How would you, how would you approach it in such a way that you preserve you know, the ability for the agency to deliver as much services as it possibly can for the remaining 70% in, you know, in the most customer-centric way? Interestingly enough, in the private sector, I would look at our budget and I'd try and make smart cuts, and I'd probably start first with contracts and outsourced and try and keep the team whole. In the government, unfortunately, it's so hard to close out contracts, and it's also hard to let people go. So your your hands are tied a little bit, and you're going to have to be opportunistic about the way that you cut your budget. And usually that opportunism comes in the form of attrition, um, which means that you're going to start to manage your attrition and and not be able to remove certain certain teams or certain contracts strategically, but you'll have to be opportunistic about when those when those teams and people come come to 
kind of so, their end so date. Let me go further on the thought exercise, and let's say I could, I could give you you know several wishes in terms of rule suspension. Right. All right. So let's say you know breathtaking cuts to the budget, but at the same time you're not. Maybe you're given some ability to make breathtaking changes. Oh. Well, that could be really interesting. Okay, so yes. what, would, well, what is that? In that look case, like? you can do things that you couldn't do otherwise, right? Well, what does it look like? So, what would be some of those first moves you'd make? I mean, so there are going to be people. Um, there, there are at least twelve or fifteen people who listen to this. Maybe, <laughs> maybe one or two of them, you know, actually are going to have to do this. They're going to. They're gonna they all at, work at OMB, though. Yeah, so. they all, yeah, yeah. Like, the OMB people have turned it off. They're losing the agency people yeah. too. So that's why it was important to have federal. But um, there's going to be one or two people who who have this challenge. What do they go back and ask the bosses to give them in the way of power, authority? You know. Uh, magic wands. Oh man, if you could untie your hands the way that you, the way that you are free to operate in the private sector, then there's lots of things you could do. If you could untie all the all the contracts, untie the ability to hire and fire people, all of that is what you need to control your budget in a smart way. Without those things, then it's just opportunistic, and you won't actually be able to make smart decisions around this. I think I want to I want to highlight something you just said. You you use the word hire and fire. Because one of the things that I think is going to inevitably happen, and I'm not sure it's the right thing, is when you start getting into a mode where you're downsizing government programs, you, you mentioned attrition. It's like, okay, we're not going to hire any new people. Right. And we're not going to backfill people that retire or leave um, uh, for, for, for whatever reason. And my concern there is... If you're going to downsize government in a smart, effective way that kind of maintains certain elements of program performance and customer service goals, you're going to need talented people Absolutely. in the organization. And in some ways, to innovate, you might need to bring in fresh perspective. And so that's kind of one thing that's out there. It's this open question that I have is, does downsizing government and government programs and slashing budgets mean we're going to stop the influx of people that might want to come in and serve government at this point in time. I think you're going to get that in a in a downward in a downsized environment, and also in, a, in an environment that has lower morale, right? So a lot of the people that we want to recruit from the private sector are coming in out of patriotic duty, or they're coming in, they're taking cuts on their own salaries to come in and contribute to their country and their government, and you know, unfortunately, I think the the environment that you're putting people in is an important environment to both attract them and maintain, retain them. I think when your budgets are cut and you're managing by attrition and everything is kind of shrinking, you're going to lose not only these people, but their enthusiasm to stay. I, there's a whole other kind of robust discussion about how cutting on the personnel side actually is is a lot more expensive than, than people think. Uh, you know, it's, What's interesting to me is some of the least creative and innovative components of agencies I work with are the, were the ones that were still kind of recovering from a riff that had been run mm. 10 years before. Right. Right? Because what had happened is you had these bump rights already. A riff being a reduction in force. Yeah. Excuse right. me. Yeah. So I'm calling you out on your acronyms <laughs> now. Yeah. Look, I'm a, I'm a Washington denizen, right? right. I'm, a, I'm an operations guy. Yeah. Right? And a reduction in force is terminology for how the U.S. government goes through a process to to lay people very off. Very right. formal, rigorous process based in law. Yeah. So if you know if 
if they're going to change that, then they're going to have to go change that underlying statute as well. And what are they going to do? Are they going to tell people who have veteran status, who have, um, you know, um, seniority, that have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, certain grade or position that th- that they don't get to bump the lower cl- the lower rated person? I mean, there's all kinds of questions that come up, which are really which need to be thought through. If part of these quote unquote breathtaking budget cuts uh, involve uh, dramatic uh, workforce reductions, how how do you how do you carry out those workforce reductions? Who who goes? Who stays? What's the process? Um, and and how do you do it if your aspiration ultimately is higher performing government, right. even if if it's a smaller higher performing government? How do you do it in a way that that maintains innovation and and talent? Um, it seems to me a, a very tough um, needle to thread. You know, I don't know. Uh, I'm not as proficient in terms of government operations as you two have been, right? In the past, what I do know is that coming from the private sector, things are dramatically cheaper. It's innovation is dramatically cheaper nowadays than it was before. I think in order to bring that innovation to the government, you're ne- you'll need to loosen up your hiring so that you can actually hire some smart smart people from the private sector coming in to pair up with government folks and kind of come up with fresh new ideas together. But you'll also need to lift a lot of your security policies around soft, using software as a service. Um, there are, there's, there, going to the cloud is cheaper, software platforms are cheaper. You can, I'm sure you'll find creative ways to to take some existing processes and digitally underpin them and get budget back that way as well. So I think there's a whole rabbit hole around the reduction in force and what that means for workforce shaping. Already the federal government um, has half as many people in its workforce that are in the millennial cohort as exists in the non-federal government workforce. A giant riff is going to only make that worse, right. not saying that millennials are better than anyone else, but if you think you have a government that skews too much towards one generational profile now, mm. wait till that comes and happens. But then I think this other issue of saying, okay, let's put that aside, the workforce shaping, and look at another factor production, kind of what's available for people in terms of tools. Your point is an excellent one around how hard it is to bring new tools in. So you're going to have kind of a more kind of long-term group of people left using the same old tools. Expensive tools. Expensive tools. I think one of the things that, that this administration can do is help remove the barrier between the kind of metaphysical Silicon Valley companies out there and the government and the way and and allow them to use those tools. So productivity tools like Slack, other work, you know, HR tools like HR Bamboo and Workable HR. I mean, the lists are endless, and these are all Wait, tools you, available to the public. We the don't have sector. sponsors here on the <laughs> podcast other than the, the fantastic uh, Scoop News Group and, and, and our two employers. But anyway, yes. so maybe we do now. Maybe. I mean, it's really interesting. I think this is a, a good question that, that I think the Obama administration struggled with as well, is how to create that fluidity and that connectivity between the, the amazing innovation that goes on in the tech community right. in Silicon Valley and elsewhere in the United States and globally 
into into government and you you know you, you run into things I don't you know I don't want to point fingers at things like the federal acquisition regulation or other kind of sh- government I think, structures I think there was though I think that was what you I, was doing well, okay think, let's point well, fingers at actually, the federal acquisition yeah, yeah, yeah. and regulation. actually you know I well we have a really amazing acquisition team at 18F that's called the Axstack and uh, as mm-hmm. as things that 18F do they have cool names um, that are trying to reimagine federal acquisition around technology and they claim that you don't need to change the, the FAR. You actually just need to be creative about the way you interpret it. The, and, the, yeah. the, you know, it's, I don't know, it's apocryphal, but the, essentially the first thing in the Federal Acqu- Acquisition Regulations, which is a 4,000-page manual for, for buying stuff for the federal government. Which has a reputation of yes. preventing quick, agile procurement into the technology world. True, but the, we used it for the Agile BPA, so it can... BPA being a uh, uh, blanket purchase agreement. So we used it to oh, buy right, Agile, right. right? So, right, but that's because that first paragraph says these are guidelines, and that your responsibility as a contracting official is to get the best possible value for the American taxpayer. However, that very simple and elegant statement is then followed up with four thousand <laughs> pages of very detailed instruction. It's no wonder that the acquisition official says, yeah, that sounds very nice, but what what are, what are these other 3,999 right. pages about? Yeah. Now, listen, I wouldn't, if someone told me that they would that they would simplify the FAR, I wouldn't say no. I'm, I'm trying to make the point that we can be innovative with the things we have. We just need to be creative about it. And I think that this budget cuts will force people to look at things differently, and hopefully that means that they'll, they'll be forced to look at things differently in a way that that maintains their, and even hopefully increases their service to the American public while while cutting their budget. So Fedra has given us a ray of hope for people to go into the, the break here. When we come back, we'll talk about that wasteland-like image that, uh, that we began to paint of a reduced workforce of people who um, have had less exposure to innovation, a completely immovable set of O&M budgets, and a technology paywall that prevents uh, innovation from coming in, and try to give people some ideas about maybe how to get around all that. Sounds good. Great. GovActually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. Okay, so uh, we're back, and we've touched on some, I think, really difficult questions. I think the way I'm thinking about it is we want to have a strategic aspiration for our government agencies to be innovative, and in particular for FEDRA, your mission when you were in government was to be more innovative with a focus on better customer service outcomes and better uh, customer-facing solutions from the government. And at the same time, if you have a strategic aspiration that the Trump administration has introduced around you know, dramatically reducing the size of government, how do you attack those things simultaneously? Or, or I don't think they need to be mutually exclusive of one another. And while I haven't asked anyone in the Trump administration, I would imagine that they have an aspiration to have government be more effective and innovative 
as a way of uh, absorbing these cuts. Um, let's start breaking down, like, how do we go about having those two aspirations simultaneously? Um, you thought a lot about customer-facing issues that the government has, um, whether it's a call center now or the functionality of a website. You know, if our resource platform has changed dramatically, what advice should we be giving to federal agencies as they try to preserve innovation and customer solutions in the face of these cuts? Well, in, the, in terms of customer solutions, we're very fortunate because a lot of the solutions that we put in place didn't actually cost money, and some of them actually saved money. So I think at GSA, when we started off, we, we didn't have a budget. Um, and we would come to... Wow, that's the ultimate uh, cut. Yes, yes yeah. zero. Zero, zero. We had a volunteer group across the agency that came together. But the important part was that we were, we were listening to the customer and we were being responsive. And in the end, innovation is just responsiveness, right? It's responsiveness to your environment or changing technology or your customer base. So being responsive can be free. Um, it can even help you find solutions that help you cut your budget. So I think looking at budget cuts, as long as your hands are untied from kind of the, you know, the odd handcuffs of government at times when it comes to people and contracts and hiring, I think if you can think of, if you can always cut um, or not cut according to what is most important to the customer first, you might actually de-bloat the government and still get a better customer solution. But do you need an upfront investment? To do that, I mean, we we I, mean, I think we were half joking about a zero budget, and maybe there was in this situation, but I think part of the catch twenty two with innovation is you need seed money uh, sometimes, whether it's seed money to hire the right people or seed money to invest in the right technology, and it maybe maybe it's not um, budget breaking dollars, right? But I guess the the issue is when when everything else is being cut. Um, that's where I think some of the tension comes in, in terms of how do you finance. Yeah. You know, sometimes you have to take on the budget a step back to take two steps forward towards better budget outcomes. I think that's one of the areas I think we're going to be really challenged with in a steep budget cut environment that we might be confronting. I think uh, I'd love to add to that that I think you're going to get some – you won't have problems – in incubating new ideas, right? So incubating is you can have a little bit of seed money and someone can get a little pilot off the ground. And frankly, that's how they should all start anyway. So perhaps it'll force more um, more structured innovation, right, in government. But what you will find, you'll, you'll find the equivalent of a Series A or Series B crunch in the private sector where you won't have money to scale your efforts. So you'll be able to try something out small, but then you won't be able to go across a huge agency and then they're even that even huger customer base. I think that's where we're going to find problems. So that's that's interesting. You use that example of kind of venture capital and and emerging technology firms. This idea that there are two things that kill a small business: one is spending too much money too uh, too fast, mm -hmm. and the other is not spending enough money quickly enough. Mm -hmm. And so, um, no, you know, clearly knowing when you're doing one versus the other is is very important, mm -hmm. but. This idea of a of a of a capital crunch for good seed ideas, um, I I think in an environment where all the money is being kind of sucked out of the baseline, right. creates I mean more than a capital crunch. I agree. I think I mean if, if this is really a wish list, and if anyone in the yeah. administration is listening, 
what, what they could do is enforce budget cuts, but then also set aside discretionary seed funding right. for ideas that help reduce the budget and or help improve customer service. And what, set aside what a, would be a the pot ratio, of funding. Like, what would be the ratio that you would go for? We're so fortunate that trying things out is so inexpensive. Right. So at GSA, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the ideal ratio is, but I can tell you that within the technology service, we had a budget um, of less than three or four million dollars that we could use, and we would give out very small amounts—ten thousand here, fifteen thousand here—for people to try out new ideas, and then just made sure that it was very gated, right? So that you'd check in on your two-week sprints, you'd tell us your progress, and then six months in, we'd know whether this is an idea that's fruitful or not, and then we'd double down, or we'd cut, or we'd cut it loose. And I think that you need that kind of very structured innovation process within an agency, and you need the small seed funding to do it. Once that, once in the first year or two you've proven that something works, then you can go back to Congress and say, these are the things that we think, if we scale, we can help the government, save the government a lot of money, and or help improve customer service a certain amount. So when, when we were building 18F, uh, very quickly we arrived at the conclusion that the first thing that we were going to have to hack was the the hiring process. The right. next thing was going to be the acquisition process. We hacked a little bit of the, you know, the operations, the space, um, maybe too much of the budgeting process. Um, what's interesting is none of that was really technology service delivery. Right. It was really looking at those core basic administrative services and saying that, you know, at, at roughly kind of 42% of the federal workforce dedicated to that component of, of what agencies do, mm-hmm. that maybe there's a lot of room to squish it. So maybe... And there was. Yeah. Right? And we were, so, they were successful in both. So maybe there's even something that isn't really related to an investment. Maybe the investment in improved technology to deliver these outcomes is something that happens at phase 1B. Right. But phase 1A might be where you were a little earlier and you kind of lit up at the suggestion, if I could suspend the rules, what would they be? Are there a couple of specific things that you would like to see suspended? Are there, were there, were there one or two things that you ran into that, that kind of stopped you up almost every time? I think hiring, I think we did a great job hacking hiring, but it still took three to four months to get mm-hmm. someone in the door. And I know that we lost a lot of good people because of that. When the private sector can hire in a couple of weeks, you need to be able to compete with the private sector and bring in the best people. Um, I, I believe acquisition was a huge pain point, and we had only started to 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 reform it as I as I started to leave. Um, but we spend 1.2 billion dollars a day in the U.S. government on contract on contracts, right? It's it's a huge part of our budget, and we need to get that right. And it's the most unsexy topic, but it's a, it's absolutely imperative. There is no such thing <laughs> as an unsexy operational topic on this show. We think we we, we we turn that frown upside yeah. down when it comes to we we excel at boring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we we think boring is good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know. Well, then I'll bore you with the second, the third one, which please. is IT regulation. So I think right. that the oh, that the third one is boring at all. <laughs> Third one is being able to not only acquire the tools, but then able to use those tools. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, the private sector has mastered this. Like we have unlimited access to all these amazing platforms that make our lives easier. And to your point, a lot of times the innovations in the process, but what technology does is it digitally underpins that process. Right. So it forces you to think about it. And 
technology that forces you to think about it has also forced others to think about it and has then crowdsourced those common themes and solutions into the technology platform. So if you're thinking about HR and HR onboarding, for example, um, the onboarding process was we hacked uh, because we were onboarding so many people every month that we needed to actually automate it in some ways. Um, you know, you're, work, you're using a platform that Pepsi uses and Google uses and other people use. And so those, th those things that they needed are also things that you might need and they're already baked in. So I think innovating on process is important, access to technology um, to be able to underpin those processes and make them faster is important. These are all things that don't necessarily cost a lot of money but can help improve operations significantly. Yeah, my concern is that you're, you're describing a level of agility that if we had it in place and we were humming with that yeah. level of agility, and then we could leverage it when something big happens, like a big budget cut or a big switch right. in direction. The problem, I think, is, is that we don't really have a robust or mature of agility platform across government. We, we experimented with it. We made some progress at 18F, um, which is great. But we're going to be seeing um, a lot of major shifts in government resource and government footprint without always having that, that agility right there. So you yeah. have to build it really quickly. And not to be too doom and gloom. No, I'm going to add to the doom and gloom. Please, <laughs> add to the doom. Go ahead. I was just saying is that one of the challenges here, and all management challenges I think are overcomable, but I'll just throw it out right. there, is that you're going to have to do it with the very people that are, the very people that are going to need to think creatively and innovatively about getting all this done. It's their home agency and their activities that are being dramatically downsized. So it's a really, you know, whether you're opposed or in favor of steep budget cuts at some of these agencies, you can't get away from, from the, the, the very, very complex management challenge um, that, that will be at play here in terms of making this all come together in, a, in an efficient, effective way. Yeah, I think there's the, the group, to some extent, that you're referring to who are who were saying no before mm. are now going to say no even louder. Yes. You know, are they, or they're the ones who are most likely to be left because they probably have the most seniority. Right. Um, add to that then an already kind of skeptical oversight world. I know that this is, you know, one of your um, great experiences in this world was, you know, working with you know, inspector generals right. or congressional staff or GAO folks who weren't, frankly, familiar with the latest kind of trends in technology and having to pull them along and educate them you dump in to this then a sense of urgency, and I'm just not sure how the, the dots get connected. I think we'll find very scrappy, resourceful people, managers, who believe that it's their job to get things done, even when all things are against them, and who will get things done. But I think we'll face some, some challenges because they're going to try and push back the bureaucracy in order to get those things done. And you'll, I think you'll find people who will throw their hands up in the air and they'll say, it's not my fault. The budgets are cut. We can't get anything done, and things and those programs will die. So it, I think yeah. it'll depend a lot on the personality of the manager and the willingness for that manager to take risk and push back to get what they need to do done. Yeah, I think if you know my my strong strong thought on this is that if you're going to undertake uh, this type of of dramatic change to a government agency and a government footprint, 
you really have to spend time thinking through the critical path and how to make it work. And it's complex, and there's going to be a lot of tensions there. We've talked about some of them. You know, it may be necessary actually to hire up some particular capacities as part of your downsizing, even though that sounds a little bit counterintuitive mm-hmm. on its face. It's not when you think about that you might need a new skill set or a new um, innovation set in order to get it done. You might want to procure a little bit more aggressively new solutions, which sounds, again, yep. somewhat counterintuitive in a downsizing, but you might need to do it. And then certainly some of the, the morale and workforce management issues to make sure that that the workforce is kind of a coalition of the involved and the willing to help you get this done, that might be the, the, the toughest trick in the bag in terms of um, because it's just human nature to, to, to resist some of, of what we're going to be seeing happening at these agencies, assuming it gets these types of cuts come through and, and get enacted. I mean, I, we, we've been talking this whole time under the assumption that some of these breathtaking cuts are, are going to happen, and maybe they are. I don't know. It's interesting right. to play with the hypothetical that they would. I will say that, that there are a lot of stakeholders who stand to lose when you, when you have these types of cuts put on the table. Um, I can remember I, you know, being involved in both Republican and Democratic administrations at OMB, and we would put big cuts in the budget, maybe not like this, but cuts to different programs, and they would get rejected by Congress because of stakeholder interest. So I think right. we have a, a long way to go um, in the discussion, months of, of negotiation before we see where the cuts are taking place. I would hope that if Congress and the executive branch get together and decide on a set of cuts, that they do it in a way that's kind of very thoughtful mm-hmm. about the road ahead to make sure that we don't kind of create or shoot ourselves in the foot for years to come. I thought, Dan, your point earlier, and maybe this is a good way to kind of close out the thought about that y- your your assessment was then when, when there were kind of these reductions in force, you noticed that those parts of the organization, some of the skill sets or innovation or drive had atrophied in some way. Um, and, you know, we should be worried about repeating that in some way. And yeah. so maybe you in, could talk in, a In those bit more. instances, what I found was that a already baseline, nervous, risk-averse population was even more nervous and risk-averse because they remembered, you know, X years ago when a third of the room got showed the door. Right. So I think you're going to, to your point, you're going to have to give people permission to be more aggressive, permission mm-hmm. to hire up in certain areas because they're going to be thinking about their budget cuts and then knowing that anytime they spend money, they're going to be there will be oversight committees looking at them and slapping them on the wrist I like for this it. idea. For every percent cut, there should be a 2%, you know, one out, two in, mm. or one, out, one in, two out, 2% increase of flexibility on the manager in terms of what yeah. they get to do. Yeah. So, um, and maybe they, maybe they should be given some kind of pilot authority or some executive order authority or some congressional authority to say, look, they have to come up with a plan of how they're going to manage that cut. But on the table should be everything else in terms of all the limitations imposed on people to be able to run these things to turn them on a dime. These things are not designed to be turned on yeah. a dime. They're, 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 yeah. they're designed to be increased by 2% or reduced by 2%, not 
five, ten. Well, 30. you need some time, and I don't, I don't mean to make excuses and 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 around delay. But I was just thinking about, you know, I served as the acting commissioner of the IRS, um, and I've been thinking during this discussion, like hypothetically, let's say, uh, on day one, I lose, you know, thirty percent of the resources to staff the call centers that are really an important function of assisting taxpayers in their in helping meet their duty and obligation to, to meet their tax obligations. And could I do it? And I was starting to like lay out the the, the, the road ahead. And of, of course I would want to lay out a road ahead that's a supplemented the call center with different technology mm. solutions and training. And maybe I could get the organization over time to a new steady state world where we were helping taxpayers but with different approaches that maybe were less expensive over time right. than a call center. But I need I need time, I need planning, I need creative people at the table helping carve out a journey um, that gets us there and thinks differently maybe about how to leverage different stakeholders in local communities that can help with taxpayer assistance, thinking about different uh, enhancements to the web platform, right. um, just thinking about different services that exist in today's world. But again, I, I need time and I need creative people at the table. If it's just, nope, on day one, you're, you're, cut. you're, you're cut, then then you see a dramatic change in service and well, you have a lot of negative potential outcomes. In theory, you have until October 1, but when was the last time That's we okay. had an appropriations bill on yeah. October 1? So I, I figure you got at least until okay. maybe this time next year. Well, that's the, I mean, and that's what I'm basically suggesting is that if this is the the direction that the administration is taking, then a priority would be from let's say the management yeah. side of OMB or otherwise is like how do we develop the right muscles and the right disciplines in government to to dramatically downsize in a way that's that's smart and actually doesn't see that's an atrophy in innovation and high performance in areas where we want. I've, I've, I'm a big believer whether you're, in, whether you're a fan of big government or small government, either way, I'm willing to bet that you probably want a high-functioning and a high-performing government. Even if it's half of what it looks like today or a quarter of what it looks like today, I think any administration would say, yeah, but whatever's left should work well and right. should protect taxpayer dollars from waste and should meet citizens' demands for effective service and should be competent. And the question is, is how do we how do we get there on that journey? And I think I think one of the messages from us, all three of us today is you got to give some thought to to how you're going to cut in a way that can be strategic and preserve some of these objectives around innovation and customer service. You might I, even take this doom and gloom scenario and actually actually make a different. This could be an inflection point for the government if given the right time, if given the right resources, and the right kind of funding parameters, you, you may be able to take those IRS call centers, for example, and turn them into Facebook chat rooms and actually, you know, meet customers where they are, plus, or whatever it is, yeah, whatever, chat like room, whatever I, it is. I certainly right? like the idea of testing different approaches with respect to acquisition and hiring and just the, the way the government operates. Look, I'll, t I, you know, I'll take any situation and try to see what the positives are and what the opportunities are, and if it's if this means if this if this cut's going to occur and Congress and the president Congress can enact it and president's going to sign it, what is the best outcome for the for the government in that situation? And maybe the best outcome is that we're testing a lot of different agile approaches 
that, uh, that can change the way we do government going forward in a very positive way. Um, I still think the cuts are going to be really, really challenging, um, obviously impact a lot of different people and a lot of different programs. Um, I think our message is let's think through how, how to plan for them in a way that, uh, that maximizes the, the possibility that government remains high performing. Well, when I was uh, when I was at GSA with you, we we cut hundreds of millions of dollars out of the budget. We dramatically changed the way we delivered services. We invented a whole new service area in TTS that you got to lead. I think to Danny's point, if you're going to do this, you need tools. You need um, you need courage and leadership, and then you also need really great smart people like Fedra Krosis. So okay. I hope you know why we brought her on and broke our OMB rule today. Yeah, no, I think I think we're going to start a trend here. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Glad to break your trend. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Fedra. Thanks for listening to another episode of Gov Actually on the FedScoop Radio Network. If you want to reach out to us, you can tweet us at at GovActually, or you can send an email to dan at govactually.com or danny at govactually.com. 